welcome back to Costume Drama Rewind, where your hosts Laura Skog and Megan Jett enjoyed a very nice extended Thanksgiving break. This week, we're reviewing The Man Who Invented Christmas from 2017. It's directed by Barat Naludi, with appearances by Matthew Dan Stevens Crawley, Christopher Plummer, Justin Edwards, Jonathan Price, Morvith Clark, Ian McNeese, Miriam Margoyles, aka Professor Sprout, and Donald Sumter. But most importantly, we'd like to note that the rating promised us language, sex, drug use, and violence. We got instead some champagne and oysters, and Mrs. Dickens informing Charles in the most Victorian way possible that she was, once again, knocked up. First, a quick synopsis. It's the fall of 1843, and Charles Dickens' brilliant writing career isn't going all that brilliantly. His last few novels have done a big old belly flop, both critically and financially. His increasing social conscience is tortured by both the poverty and desperation he sees on London's streets, and what he sees as increasing indifference towards the plight of the lower classes. He needs a literary hit, but he wants to write something that will wake people up. These two imperatives come together in Dickens' mind. Meanwhile, the family's new Irish maid's love of ghost stories provides a solid narrative hook, and he locks himself in his writer's garret to begin feverishly drafting his new novel, which he decides to self-publish. His goal is to have it published in time for Christmas, but he faces some roadblocks along the way. The chaos of a house full of children, the arrival of his never-do-well father, his struggles with debt as he strives to keep up with the Thackerays, the intransigence of various contractors in the publishing industry, and, most ominously, some looming writer's block, make for slow going. Fortunately, he has a little help from his friends, in the form of a Tom Riddle-like dream hallucination of his book's principal character. Christopher Plummer plays Scrooge with more charm than the character has ever been granted, and he gains steadily more agency throughout the book as he freely offers commentary on Dickens' life and travails. He's eventually joined by a Greek chorus of fellow Christmas Carol characters, so that four times fast, who trail Dickens around London as the author confronts the demons of his hardscrabble childhood. Finally, with the help of his own fictional character, Dickens learns to let go of his resentments, listen to the people around him, and get out of his own way. He finishes the book A Christmas Carol in Triumph and settles in to keep Christmas well with his family. So, first impressions. This movie was new to me, but Netflix has been trying to steadily push it on me for about three years. A Christmas Carol is a huge part of my family's Christmas traditions. We've seen at least a dozen different versions, and I guess the algorithm decided that it was high time that I finally watched it. So, originally when you suggested this movie, I thought it was going to be kind of boring. I like Dickens, but I was expecting a really boring biopic. But I was wrong. It was very charming, it has a good healthy dose of British actors you see in every costume drama, and while this seems highly improbable, I did actually cry a bit at the end, but just a bit. So what you're saying is that I actually have impeccable taste. Anyway, let's get to the heart of the matter. The movie shows a lot of flashbacks to Dickens' childhood and the trauma it inflicted on him, as well as the strain it puts on his relationship with his dad. And this is all generally true. The first part of his childhood seems to have been pretty nice, with him reading all sorts of books, including stuff we'd think is for adults like Henry Fielding. But this all changed when his dad, who was already starting to rack up debts, went to work in London, and the creditors followed. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Charles began having to work in Warren's blacking factory in London, gluing labels on bottles, but this was actually just before his dad went to debtor's prison, and not afterwards like the movie shows. Chaz didn't work in the factory for that long. His dad was only in prison for about three months before the inheritance from Charles's grandmother's death allowed his dad to get out. Side note, his mom actually wanted him to keep working in the factory. Thanks! <laughs> 
All these awful experiences made enough of an impression on him that they influenced his books. For example, the entire family, except for him, lived in the prison with his dad, and this made its way into the book Little Dorrit. And of course, a lot of his other work features children suffering. A lot. Interestingly enough, according to biographer Michael Allen, who has written extensively about Dickens, Dickens refused to tell anybody about his childhood experiences. He did write an account of his time in the factory and all of its misery, but he shared it with just his wife, Catherine, and then his friend, John Forrester, who we got to see as his long-suffering friend and handler in the movie. Forrester put this information in a biography written after Dickens' death, and this was the first time that his factory days had been made public knowledge. When Dickens initially conceived of A Christmas Carol, he didn't want to write about ghosts or geese. He wanted to write an earnest, fact-filled political pamphlet, which he planned to title An Appeal to the People of England on Behalf of the Poor Man's Child. And then he realized that this was a terrible idea, and decided to embody his arguments in a story instead. But he was inspired by a recently released government report on child labor, and he was haunted by stories of children as young as eight, working six days a week for 11 to 16 hours, hunched over factory lines or dragging coal carts, sleeping where they worked. He channeled his horror into A Christmas Carol, which he intended to be both spiritual parable and social gospel. A Christmas Carol's publication landed smack in the middle of an ongoing reorientation and renewal of Christmas celebrations in English society. The Christmases of earlier eras were pretty wild, with their games and dancing and the Lord of Misrule. By the Victorian era, that sort of celebration was seen as a quaint peasant tradition that didn't really have a place in an urbanized, industrialized society. A Christmas Carol was part of changing all that. The book was an overnight success. It sold out its first printing in five days and six more printings in the next 12 months. The next year, newspapers throughout the UK credited the book with market increase in charitable giving. It was hugely influential for a generation of writers. Louisa May Alcott, Robert Louis Stevenson, and G.K. Chesterton are three among the many whose work it influenced. A half century after the novel's publication, the Queen of Norway would send gifts to children in London with disabilities, along with cards that read, With Tiny Tim's Love. Dickens' story was part of codifying a new set of traditions that kept some of the old ways alive, but really refocused Christmas on children, families, and charity. In a way, he captured the zeitgeist of what was already starting to happen, with the Oxford movement emphasizing ritual and tradition and religion, and with the British royal family offering a pleasant example of modern domesticity with Victoria and Albert and their approximately 1,200 kids (laughs) gathered around the Christmas tree. But Dickens also definitively placed his own stamp on the holiday, and it's A Christmas Carol that brought the expression Merry Christmas into regular use. The book has never been out of print and has been adapted for film and television more than 50 different times and produced as an opera, a ballet, and a graphic novel. One professor of English literature notes that depictions of Scrooge on stage and screen have changed with the changing times. For the Victorians, it was very much a spiritual story. During the Great Depression, the story came to be viewed as a denunciation of capitalism, but by the 1960s, Scrooge was a Freudian figure wrestling with the demons of his past. However we choose to interpret Dickens' characters, they have become some of our best-known cultural shorthands and certainly are a permanent part of many families' Christmas traditions. I have to say... William Makepeace Thackeray, best name ever, played by Miles Jupp, was probably my favorite character in the movie because how he keeps tabs on what his fellow novelists are up to and the bad reviews they get for their books. He's petty, and I love it. When preparing for this podcast episode, I basically just typed, was Thackeray a jerk? into the Google, and I got an entire article on JSTOR called Thackeray's Attitude Towards Dickens' Writings by Charles Mouskopf from 1966. Basically, Thackeray was pretty positive about Dickens if he was talking to other people, 
but he dinged him a lot when writing book reviews. His main beef was that he didn't think Dickens stuck closely enough to realism. Great makepiece quote, I quarrel with his art in many respects, which I don't think respects nature duly. For instance, Macabre appears to me an exaggeration of a man, as his name is of a name. What's interesting is that Thackeray was also writing Christmas stories. He did write some nice reviews about The Christmas Carol and Cricket in the Hearth, I guess trying to promote the genre, even if there are some pretty aggressive digs. But apart from that, basically the two men were uncomfortable sharing the spotlight as THE Victorian writers, even though they were in the same circles and their daughters were good friends. Eventually things reached a boiling point in the 1850s with what's called the Garrick Club Affair. The Garrick Club is a private club, we saw it in the movie, it's in the West End, and it's for the arts and literature crowd. Anyway, Thackeray talked smack about Charles leaving his wife for another woman. Justified. <laughs> so Charles let a young friend write a hit piece about the Thacks that used private conversations that happened at the Garrett Club. Thackeray complained to the club leadership, and the writer got kicked out. This kid would have been like an online troll today, because what he did after getting kicked out was to write even more inflammatory stuff about Thackeray. And he only stopped once Charles made him, because Charles was starting to get reputational hits because of it. This kid sounds like your soulmate. <laughs> so now the big question. How many holly-bedecked top hats are we awarding to the man who invented Christmas? Um, I want to go with 3.5 holly-bedecked top hats. As I mentioned, I thought the movie was going to be pretty dull, but I was really surprised by the storytelling as well as how it portrays the writing and the publishing process. I still think the MPAA rating was false advertising, though, but we did get to see Dan Stevens looking a lot like Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka. So, pretty solid movie. You just really wanted the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I did. I'm giving this movie a solid four Holly Bedecked Top Hats. We all know that I am a sucker for an unconventional narrative structure, and mm -hmm. I really loved having Dickens' characters come out of the book to act as his life coaches. I also appreciated that it managed to give some real emotional stakes and high drama to the writing of a novel, and I really enjoyed all the winks at the original text of A Christmas Carol. So finally, a few sundry other notes. In addition to the Garrett Club, the Burlington Arcade and the Hungerford Stairs are also real places. The Burlington Arcade is a covered shopping venue off of Piccadilly. It was built in 1818 by the Earl of Burlington, right next to his place called Burlington House. There are a few different speculations as to why he built it, including one that was so his wife and her friends could have a nicer, more genteel place to go shopping. Anyway, it's been there ever since, and you too can go shopping there. You may have seen it in the live-action 101 Dalmatians, The Danish Girl, or Kingsman, The Golden Circle. Near the movie's climax, Dickens and Forster find themselves at what they call the Hungerford Stairs. Those are actually one of the numerous sets of stairs dotting the bank of the Thames River. These would have offered access to the river for both passenger traffic and cargo transport. This particular set of stairs would have taken one from the river right up to the Hungerford Produce Market, which was located on the site of the present-day Charing Cross Railway Station, and the Warren Blacking Factory was in fact located right on Hungerford Stairs, as we see in the movie. Michael Allen, who we mentioned just now, wrote a book called Charles Dickens and the Blacking Factory, which uses information he got from Chancery Court records about a lawsuit the factory owners were in to flesh out Dickens' time spent there, since we don't really have that much detail from Dickens' writings about it. 
Another great book that I used getting ready for this episode was The Lives and Times of Ebenezer Scrooge by Paul Davis, a former professor of literature at the University of New Mexico. The book takes a deep dive into the impact and legacy of A Christmas Carol, and also into the different ways it's been interpreted over the years with the changing times. Oddly enough, we only have one repeat actor for this time's actor count, Donald Sumter, who plays Haddock the Attorney in Marley's Ghost. He was Paul Mason in In the Heart of the Sea, Knew she was going to do that. <laughs> and he was also in Game of Thrones. However, what I found interesting was the number of people from this movie who have played Dickens or his family members in other productions. Dan Stevens played Charles Dickens in a radio production called Dickens Confidential. I'm pretty sure Dan Stevens will be back on the podcast. Miriam Margoles, who plays Mrs. Fisk, played Catherine Dickens in a 2002 TV series production called Dickens. Simon Callow, who plays Leech, has also been Charles in a few different film productions, and they, along with Pretty much everyone else in the cast has been in tons of movie and TV show adaptations of Dickens' books. So what you're saying is that these people all act like the Dickens. <laughs> and we're ending now. So finally, if you're interested in museums that you can support during this challenging time, we are big fans of London's Foundling Museum, which tells the story of the Foundling Hospital, which cared for more than 25,000 orphaned or abandoned children over the course of 200 years, supported by public arts programming led by the likes of Hogarth and Handel, and of which Dickens was an enthusiastic supporter, could I possibly have had any more dependent clauses in one sentence. But today, the museum strives to build awareness of child poverty through both historical interpretation and public art, plays a really important role in London's museum scene as a place that shows how the other half lived, so to speak. Join us next time for Joyeux Noël which is about the famed Christmas truce of 1914. It incorporates German, French, and Scottish perspectives of World War I. Until then, we'd like to wish our listeners a happy and healthy holiday season. God rest ye merry, gentlemen, and we're ending nothing you now. dismay. No more singing.